Well, welcome to The Lyle Shelton Show. It's great to have your company. I love to discuss what the mainstream media won't, and if you do too, you've come to the right place. Well, last week was the third anniversary of the decision of the Australian people to redefine marriage. Remember the postal plebiscite on same-sex marriage? I do. I think I'm scarred for life. I'll have a bit to say about that later in the show. Also coming up is my interview with the great Professor Peter Ridd. You might remember that he is the reef expert sacked from James Cook University because he says climate change and farmers are not destroying the Great Barrier Reef. He's paid a big price for daring to challenge today's sacred cows. You won't want to miss what he has to say about his new book, Reef Heresy. But first, I need to say a few things about the US presidential election, which remains in limbo. President Trump has not conceded, and despite what the media and Twitter say, Joe Biden is not the president-elect. The Washington Post says democracy dies in darkness, but I want to add that a fixation with hair dye doesn't help. Let me explain. It's too early to say Trump can prove fraud and overturn the presidential election result, but the evidence his team is gathering is formidable. Perhaps that's why the mainstream media would rather focus on hair dye and sweat. I've always had a healthy scepticism of the media, but for the first time last week, that turned to outright cynicism and even anger, I'm sorry to say. Early last Friday morning, I read a number of mainstream media accounts of the media conference President Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, gave at the Republican Party's National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. For the mainstream media, it was all about the dye-coloured sweat running down the former New York City mayor's face. You might have seen the images. They portrayed the presser as a freak show with Giuliani and Powell throwing out wild allegations. Our media, like their counterparts in the US, are running the coronation of Joe Biden despite the fact the election remains contested. My blood pressure rose several hours later as I watched an hour of the media conference on YouTube unfiltered. We are not being well served by our media. Their sneering and flippant dismissal of serious allegations of electoral fraud is plain arrogant. Our elite overlords are poking 72 million uh, Americans in the eye. These are mostly working and middle class people who voted for Trump and who expect to have confidence in the system. At 34 minutes into the press conference, Giuliani's hair dye started running down his face. Undistracted, he kept going, handed over to Sidney Powell, wiped his face with a hanky, and kept going when it was his turn again. I don't know if Giuliani and Powell can prove all their claims in court, but what they raise is not nothing. We should be allowed to know what the arguments they are putting forward in the court are. Here's a brief process of what I learned when I watched the media conference for myself on YouTube. Number one, Trump was leading by 700,000 votes in Pennsylvania on election night, only to have that whittled away after counting mysteriously stopped and tens of thousands of mail-in ballots, which were not checked for fraud, turned up. Almost all of these votes were for Biden, who is now 69,000 votes ahead in Pennsylvania. Giuliani uh, has statisticians willing to testify in court to the mathematic impossibility of Trump losing his election night lead in some of the key battleground states. More than 600,000 mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania were separated from their outside envelopes, which contained the only proof that the votes are from a real person, not fake. Sadly, Republican poll watchers, or scrutineers as we call them, were not allowed to inspect the separation of the naked ballot from the outside envelope. 
Under Pennsylvanian law, this is illegal for obvious reasons. If chain of custody can't be proven, there is no confidence that the election is fair. These ballots should be set aside. The recount in the state of Georgia, which narrowly favoured Biden, uh, will be contested in court. This is because unchecked mail-in votes that had become separated from their outside envelopes were counted again in the recount. A pointless exercise. That's like counting counterfeit money and adding it to someone's bank balance. In Democrat-leading um, uh, cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, people who had cast illegal votes were allowed to fix or cure them. That same opportunity was not given to voters in Republican-leading uh, Republican counties where people had uh, you know, made mistakes with their ballot. In Detroit, Michigan, an electoral official by the name of Jesse Jacob has signed an affidavit alleging that she was instructed by her superior to backdate late mail-in ballots. Now, these overwhelmingly favoured Biden. Giuliani says he has hundreds of signed affidavits that he will lodge in court from people testifying uh, to having witnessed significant fraud. Several people will testify that in Detroit, Michigan, a truck rolled up at 4.30 in the morning and dropped off somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 votes, all for Biden. Sydney Powell says that she has evidence that the electronic Dominion voting machines used in many states were not tamper-proof and that fraud has occurred on a large scale. Now, the media should be reporting this and they should be doing their own investigations. Instead, all they do is ridicule two of the finest lawyers in the US because of uh, Trump derangement syndrome justifies anything these days. Sadly, everyone, regardless of political persuasion, should care about allegations of electoral fraud. That is more important than even who ultimately wins. Now, since the joint media conference last week, Sidney Powell has been uh, cut loose, it seems amicably, from the Trump legal team. She will keep pursuing the Dominion voting machine issues in separate legal actions, which she claims will expose criminal activity. We'll have to wait and see. It's taking time for both Giuliani's team and Powell's to get the evidence together, and we need to be patient. The media should care about this because democracy cannot function properly without an informed citizenry and a citizenry that has confidence in their electoral system. But maybe not having an informed citizenry suits the mainstream media. It's time we turn to alternative sources. The good source is a good start. Well, joining me now is Peter Ridd, a marine geophysicist and author or joint author of more than 100 scientific papers and co-inventor co of a range of instruments used on reefs around the world. He shot to prominence in about 2016, 2017, when his then employer, James Cook University, disciplined him for questioning the quality of much of the reef science being used to tell the public that our greatest natural wonder was dying as a result of climate change, the crown of thorn starfish, and farmers spewing sediment and fertilizer nutrients onto the reef. He was later sacked and is involved in protracted legal action in a bid to see academic freedom restored in this nation. He has just penned an excellent book, Reef Heresy, Science, Research, and the Great Barrier Reef. Peter Ritt, welcome to The Lyle Shelton Show. Thanks very much. Peter, it's a great privilege to have you today. Uh, the title of your book is very provocative and uh, there's no doubt you're seen as a heretic by some people, uh, particularly in academia and the media, and they've gone to great lengths to silence you. 
But uh, the times that I've met you up in Townsville and uh, heard you speak, I've found you to be one of the most polite, mild-mannered and considered academics I've ever met. Have you been surprised at the lengths JCU and elements of the media have been prepared to go to discredit and silence you? Uh, not really surprised, I suppose. Uh, disappointed. There's actually quite a number of um, scientists who are my opposition scientifically, so as to speak, who um, actually are on my side in terms of academic freedom. They disagree with me scientifically, but they're actually on my side. It's really only as you get higher and higher up in the institutions that you get this uh, wanting to crush um, any sort of dissent. That's where, where the problem really lies, and that's where the disappointment is, I think. Hmm. It's quite a frightening thing because uh, big public policy decisions are, are made as a result of, of science and expert advice, and uh, we've been hearing this quite a lot during the coronavirus um, hmm. uh, pandemic. But um, the thesis of your book is that the reef is actually fine, and it's in very good health, and you say that um, the crown of thorns starfish are, are natural predators and they're not destroying the reef. Warming ocean water actually makes the coral grow faster. And farm mm -hmm. runoff has minimal impact on the inner reef and uh, no impact on the outer reef. Uh, so what's all the fuss about? Well, exactly. And it was interesting. I mean, just the other day, oh, it's probably a couple of weeks ago now, I was in at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority talking to their chief and I was saying, you know, pesticides and sediment just doesn't have any effect on the reef. And his comment was, well, we've never said that it does. <laughs> and I think, well, somehow or other you've managed to give the impression to the whole world that, that farm runoff is having this effect. Um, and it would be really nice if you could actually say what you just said now uh, on a broadcast like this. But of course, they never want to say those sorts of things out in public. Um, so, you know, you're right of the, the threats to the reef, the only one that I see can, has even some substance to it is whether the ocean pH, this is sort of like the acidity, uh, yeah. will change with increasing carbon dioxide concentrations. That worries me a little bit. But all the other things, when you actually look at the hard data, um, the Great Barrier Reef is one of the most pristine, unsport ecosystems in the world, and it's just incredible that we've managed to convince the world that it's in some sort of trouble. You only need to go out and visit it to be able to see that it's just not true. Yeah, I haven't had the privilege of going out to the outer reef. I've been to Green Island, but um, I was fascinated in your book that um, you said on, on things like you know farm runoff that the outer reef is actually you know twenty to hundred kilometres away and and is completely unaffected by these things. And I've certainly watched television broadcasts where people have said the sort of things that uh, are now denied by people you're speaking to. So um, we really have been given the wrong end of the stick, haven't we? T totally the wrong end of the stick. Um, I mean, with regard to farm sediment, I mean, I studied farm sediment for 25, 30 years um, and how far it goes offshore. You basically cannot find farm sediment out of the reef. You can tell whether sediments come from the land by looking at, at its uh, chemical composition. It just doesn't get there. And of course, when you actually talk to these, say, Gabrumpa and various other people, they say, oh, we never say that either. We just say there's a risk. And you say, well, why do you say there's a risk? There's no nothing out there. Um, so they're very, very careful and crafty about how they um, count stuff so they can guarantee that the media will blow it out of all proportion. 
Um, but essentially, th there really is minimal uh, risk to the reef. Yeah, I was relieved to hear that because I was following uh, the Labor government's legislation last year and, and it's just more of this demonisation of farmers and um, I was so pleased to see you dedicate your book to the farmer. Yeah, well, that's interesting that because um, it wasn't until I... I mean, I, I come from a farming area. I'm a Pom originally, but I grew up in Innisfail, so I know a lot of farmers and I'm from a farming community. But it wasn't until I saw the effect that these uh, new legislation is having on the farmers, not just in terms of the, the bottom line economically, but it's about when they're accused of, of um, killing the Great Barrier. I mean, one, one fellow came home from work and his kid was there and he came and said, I've just been told at school that, that um, cane farmers are killing the reef, you know. Can you imagine what it's like to be told by your ch child, you know, you're killing the Great Barrier Reef? It really hurts these people, and um, and you know farmers are not the best at, at, at uh, expressing their feelings, and they're, they're not at best at a lot of things except for farming. Um, but this is really affects them in a way that I don't think a lot of the scientists actually realise, and it's demonising for no good reason. It's okay to blame somebody for something they're doing if it's fair income, but in this case, just all the evidence says farming has no effect yeah. or on the main reef, and just a tiny, almost infinitesimal effect on about 1% of the coral that's very close in shore. So why was not this science listened to when the Labor government under Anastasia Palaszczuk passed this legislation last year? Well, because you know the, the, this is what the data says, but then what happens is the, the science institutions and some of the um, environmental organisations get together and they make these consensus statements and various other things where they supposedly synthesise the information and they completely distort it. So, for example, the Great Barrier Reef consensus statement says that farming is a major risk to the reef, um, even though the data actually, in my view, says exactly the opposite. It actually demonstrates without any shadow of a doubt that it's not a problem. So, ironically, I actually have sympathy for the Labor government. They're being told by these essentially untrustworthy science organisations that the reef is on its last legs. And what are you going to do as a politician? You know, if the Australian Institute of Marine Science is saying, oh, there's a problem here, well, then you've got to go along with it. You're not going to listen to a person who might be a heretic. Um, I'm not a heretic because, in fact, I'm actually telling the truth. Uh, heresy is when you're not telling the truth, in fact. Um, and, of course, I'm not the only one, but I'm one of the few that is prepared to stand up and, uh, and say these things. So, actually, I've got some sympathy for politicians. The fundamental problem must be sheeted home to the untrustworthy science organisations. Well, I agree with you there, but I think you might be being a bit generous to politicians uh, because I think they've got a duty to seek out the truth as well, and so is the media. Yeah. But um, the other class of people that's being demonised, not just farmers, is is all of us yeah. for existing because we are you know, causing climate change by driving our cars and turning our lights on and travelling overseas and all of these sort of things. And so we hear incessantly that climate change is destroying the reef. Uh, president Obama, when he was president, said so. So I was interested in what you had to say on page 27 of your book, and I'd like to just read it for our viewers and get your response. You say, the sea level is now lower than when the Egyptians were building pyramids and when the Earth's climate and the Great Barrier Reef was a degree or so hotter than today. Yep. 
That's, that's right. Extraordinary. No, there's no buts about that. You can. Um, the sea level was about a metre higher. And actually, when the sea level fell, it fell very gently over a few thousand years. And, of course, the, the, the coral tries to grow up to the sea level surface, basically the spring low tide level. If you drop the sea level, all that coral that was once growing there now gets killed. So there's vast areas, what we call the reef flats, on the Great Barrier Reef where there's dead coral, but it died a few thousand years ago. And, you know, there's no ifs, no buts about that. But also, you know, if, if we do get a, a bit more of a, a warming climate over the next century, that will make the, the corals grow faster. If you go from the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef to the northern end of the Great Barrier Reef, the coral grows about 50% faster in the northern end. Same species of coral grows faster in warmer water. If you go up into Papua New Guinea and Thailand, it grows even warmer still. So it grows there about twice as fast as it does on the, the, the southern Great Barrier Reef. Essentially, corals like it hot. You don't go, I mean, you're in Brisbane. There are corals in Morton Bay. There's surprisingly good corals in Morton Bay. But they're actually stressed because the water is too cold. And there is absolutely no doubt that we, you know, that the maybe half a degree increasing temperature that we've had over the last century will be making the corals grow probably around about 10% faster than they were before. It's uh, unbelievable. So when James Cook University sacked you, um, you, you took an unfair dismissal case to the Federal Circuit Court and you won, but that was later overturned in the Federal Court. Um, the Circuit Court agreed with you that academic freedom was sacrosanct. Uh, Judge Vastas said, quote, incredibly, the university has not understood the whole concept of intellectual freedom. A wonderful comment. But JCU yeah. appealed that decision and the higher federal court ruled against you saying this, and uh, I'll just read what they said because I think this was quite alarming. They said that there is little to be gained in resorting to historical concepts and definitions of academic freedom. Whatever the concept once meant, it has evolved. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, where, where's truth these days and freedom? Uh, it's a good question. We were very alarmed by that. And, of course, that's, some of those things will hopefully be coming up if we get to the High Court. Um, we've, we've got a, a, a hearing to determine whether they're going to hear the, the appeal. Um, but, of course, there was a two-to-one decision. We, we didn't lose totally there. The dissenting judge disagreed with many of the comments made by the, the two majority uh, judges uh so actually very crudely we we're sort of two judges with us and two judges against us uh, so we've got a reasonable chance in the high court but of course since then we've also had the federal government step in um with pauline hansen's help in fact uh to change the higher education act to define academic freedom more broadly and not perhaps exactly the way those judges um, maybe uh, would like to define it. I heard you speaking about that legislation on uh, The Outsiders the other week on Sky News. Mm. Um, you said that perhaps, well, it's a good start, it perhaps doesn't quite go far enough. Can you just explain what you meant by that? Well, there's a few things. Um, the, the most important thing is that you can have a great rule, but if you're not going to enforce it, well, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So. You can have a, a, a thing where you say, look, universities must allow academic freedom. You can't impose these codes of conduct where you've got to supposedly be polite and all these sorts of things. And the, the university decides whether you've been polite. Um, 
you can have the greatest rule, but unless there's going to be a great big fine at the end of it, and I mean 10 million bucks worth of fine against the university if they break it, then the universities will just keep on breaking the rules um, because they know there's no consequence. And that's what's got to happen. But there's also got to be a total change in the, the mindset of the university from this corporatist idea that everybody's got to work to the greater good of the university rather than to the greater good of the truth which is really what universities should be there for. I mean, what you've described sounds almost like a, th these universities are their own little self-contained totalitarian regime where you must you know, support uh, the, the consensus uh, mm. regardless of the truth. It, it sounds like something out of George Orwell's Animal Farm. It, it, no, it really is. Um, so, I mean, in the, in the uh, codes of conduct, and even with some of the things which they did me for, um, you've got to hold, um, uphold um, the respect of the university. So if you, damage, if you damage the reputation of the university in any way, and the university will decide what their reputation is, if it's been damaged, then that's no good. So, for example, in many regards, um, if this um, appeal court judge, uh, judgment holds, if I see somebody else being fraudulent at a university, and I say that could be fraudulent, even if it is fraudulent, I've broken the code of conduct because I have damaged the reputation of the university by highlighting the fact that there is fraud. That is the state that we've actually got to, if that judgment, in my opinion, um, uh, holds. It's why, by the way, the, the union, by the way, I was a member of the union for 25, 30 years. The union have been very good on this and they're very, very worried about the implications of this and they were actually um, at the court hearings um, yeah, at the appeal. That's very encouraging to hear yeah. because I, I'm alarmed to see that our universities have got to this stage where yeah. reputation is more important than truth because governments make decisions. I think you say in the book that um, half a million or $500 million, sorry, uh, half a billion dollars of public money goes towards reef science. Um, so, and then governments make decisions that affect the rest of us that, that cost us money in higher electricity prices in the terms of yep. climate change, they cost people's jobs, they cost farmers' livelihoods. Uh, and, and yet, if someone speaks out for the truth based on their academic qualifications, they're crushed. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the, the thing that actually got me into trouble, that the final straw was I was basically saying, Peer review, which a lot of your viewers will have heard about, is not what they think it is, right? Peer review is held up as being this massive quality assurance where a piece of work is peer reviewed by maybe a dozen other scientists and they pour over it for months and they redo the experiments. It's nothing like that. It's literally a, a, a quick read of the work for a couple of hours and, you know, and it turns out that about 50% of the peer reviewed literature ends up being wrong. And I was simply saying that if the only quality assurance mechanism uh, these institutions is peer review and that is the case then we cannot regard their results as being trustworthy so in other words the uh, organization is untrustworthy now it, it's it's uncontroversial that peer review is a hopeless system and yet i uh, ended up being fired for essentially saying that we needed better quality assurance and we can't rely on this reef science for making major public policy decisions that's outrageous because, as we know, that the um, the climate change policy is driven by consensus, by the IPCC consensus 
um, arrangements that have come to uh, from all over the world. And yet if the peer reviewed process is so bad right across academia, um, yep. we, we are in deep trouble as a society. No, that's right. I mean, th this problem with the peer review, this is well known in the biomedical field. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a guy called Professor John Ionides who's written extensively about this problem. Um, but of course, you know, you, you mentioned climate change. The science of the Great Barrier Reef is far worse than the climate change science, in my view. At least with climate change, over the last hundred years, there has been a gentle increase in temperature. And you can argue whether that's natural or it's, it's, it's man-made. In the case of the Great Barrier Reef, there is the same amount of coral as there always was. The growth rates have, if anything, increased. The sediment isn't getting out to the reef. The pesticides are in such low concentrations you can't even measure them, except for very close inshore and even then almost never. So you don't even have this initial, well, the temperature's gone up, so maybe there's a problem. There is actually no problem even to start with. And yet we've managed to convince the world and all the children are in depression that the reef will be gone. You know, it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah, no, that's right. I know I'm jumping around a little bit in this interview, but um, you, you mentioned uh, some of these issues that have caused fear. Another one has been bleaching uh, as a result of yep. warming. Can you just address that? I know you talk about that in the book. Yeah, well, bleaching is supposedly the way that climate change is killing the reef. So what happens is that corals are... Uh, are made up of a lot of little polyps, little pots, um, and they're an animal, but inside that animal is um, algae, and this gives it its colour. And for some reason, occasionally, the coral can just get rid of that little algae, um, and it will do it when the water gets very hot, or when it gets very cold, or if there's fresh water, or if it's just feeling sick, right? It will, and it will get rid of the algae, and it will turn white, in other words, it will bleach. Now, this certainly happens on occasions when the water gets very, very hot, unusually hot for that particular location. But these bleaching events must have been going on for, you know, ever since the year dot. So um, there's no reason to suspect there are any more now than they ever used to be. But the incredible thing about corals is that they have the ability to adapt to temperature changes better than virtually any other organism. Because they take in this, this algae, but it depending on what type of algae they take in, it's just floating around in the water, they can deal with very hot temperatures or they can deal with very cold temperatures. So often what will happen when a coral bleaches, it gets rid of this uh, algae that it's got at the moment, it then brings in another algae which is able to cope with water temperatures which may be a degree or two hotter. So this bleaching um, thing actually allows it to adapt to its conditions in the way that we can't. We've got to go through many generations of... Mm. Uh, you know, natural selection to be able to cope with hotter temperatures. Coral can do it within a few months just by changing the algae that lives inside it. Well, that's fascinating. Well, Peter, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Um, I'm so grateful to you for writing this book. There it is there. It's called Reef Heresy, Science, Research and the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, Peter, we wish you all the best in the High Court. We, I trust that they grant you leave to have that case heard there and that somehow this helps awaken Australians to the need for freedom of speech and for, and for freedom for academics in our institutions. Thanks very much, my pleasure. Peter's book is available from conacourtpublishing.com.au. They are wonderful publishers of conservative books, so make sure you go to conacourtpublishing.com.au and grab your copy today. We need to keep fighting for freedom. 
This week marks the third anniversary of the Australian people's decision to redefine marriage in law. In the years leading up to the historic 2017 postal plebiscite, and then again during the three-month campaign, Australians were told there would be no consequences. The only people affected would be the loving couple. Remember that? This, of course, was a lie. But fear of being labelled a bigot drove a majority of Australians, sadly, to vote yes. Now, as I speak, I'm before the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal for speaking for the rights of children to be protected from harmful gender-fluid indoctrination by LGBTIQA plus drag queens in public libraries. The Perth couple Byron and Kira Hordyke have been banned from fostering children because of their Christian beliefs. They are before the Western Australian State Administrative Tribunal, which is equivalent to QCAT, which I'm before. They're there next week uh, fighting for their religious freedom, for all of our religious freedom, not just theirs. Legal action was taken against Ballarat Christian College for wanting to uphold its parent community's views of marriage in its staffing decisions. And this week, two married women, uh, one an AFLW player, announced in the media the birth of their baby daughter. Sadly, this little girl has been denied her father, not because of tragedy or desertion, but because two married women selfishly decided this would be that baby's lot in life. Now, I don't deny that those women um, can't raise that baby and show love and, and even do a good job uh, as parents. But who is it to decide that uh, a baby is denied uh, the love of their father or in the case of two men, uh, the love of uh, a mother to a child? Now, these are just four examples uh, and they are the tip of the iceberg. These negative consequences for freedom and uh, children's rights were predicted by those of us who were arguing to keep marriage, uh, but they were denied by the Yes campaign in the same-sex marriage uh, campaign. In my recent book, I kid you not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture War, um, I, I've written 15 chapters. Three of those chapters are on the marriage campaign, and I, I'd urge you to uh, grab a copy of my book at lyleshelton.com.au and read up about this historic event and some of the consequences that have flown. It's important that we continue the struggle for freedom of speech, for freedom of religion, for children's rights and the rights of parents to have their children free of harmful gender-fluid indoctrination at school and in public libraries. Well, that's it from me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks for your company and please... Uh, join me again next week for The Lyle Shelton Show. God bless. The Lyle Shelton Show is a production of The Good Source, hosted by Lyle Shelton. To watch, listen to, or read more content without the SJW PC fact filter, visit goodsource.news. Good, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show.